0: was sort of uncharacteristic of me as it just sort of interrupted them and said there's there's a pandemic coming and in six weeks i want to be coughing up a lung in my bed with telehealth on my iphone and our electronic medical record on my laptop seeing patients in six weeks and they looked at me like
1: What got into Fetter? (laughs) (laughs) Why is he such a jerk? Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Fetter, the chief medical officer for the New Hampshire State Hospital. Dr. Fetter is a board-certified physician in both internal medicine and psychiatry. And has spent his career caring for some of the most vulnerable patients in New Hampshire. The New Hampshire State Hospital is a secure, inpatient psychiatric hospital for patients with serious mental illness. In this podcast, we talk about Dr. Fetter's journey through medicine, including how he was sure the one specialty he would not do was psychiatry. To his previous roles as chief medical officer for a community mental health clinic, and chief medical officer for the New Hampshire State Prison System. This is a great conversation about the practice of medicine, but also about the importance of physician leadership. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Jeffrey Fetter. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fetter. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you went to Johns Hopkins University and studied biology. Was this uh, the pre-med track? Were you you already in line to go to medical school? Yeah,
0: I was on the pre-med track, although at the very beginning I wasn't 100% sure that was the direction I wanted to go. What I think really got me fired up for sure about it was volunteering in the emergency room there and um, seeing the the way... um, Care was delivered, and just all kinds of contradictions and challenges and difficult um, social situations was fascinating to me. That I, you know, I was pretty from not a very medically oriented background prior to this. It it was pretty um, eye opening to me to see the challenges in cultural. Relationship between the the doctors and the nurses and with the patients, you know, kind of speaking different languages about what was actually going on around them. That actually got me more fired up than the actual trauma and heart attacks that were that were coming through.
1: No kidding. So you were you were even at that point you were already identifying some of the issues of 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 communication between doctors and patients and so forth. That's right. I thought that uh, you know, there were. It was just very interesting
0: to me to learn and see how that played out in real life, that people could be kind of talking past each other about the importance of, you know, what's more important, getting this blood drawn right now or getting this form filled out so that they actually, you know, don't miss a day's worth of pay from work. Uh, that, that could be an existential issue to a patient. Yeah. Um,
1: and yet the medical system is much more interested in the sodium level. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's a, a more of a comprehensive perspective on the patient's well-being. Wow. All right. So you said not really from a medical background. So, but you were on the pre-med track. What ins- I mean, what was it that was driving you to even do that? Well, I'll say that it was a combination of I, I've
0: always been very interested in science, and um, you know, there was not. Um, uh, there was some familial pressure to do something that was uh, uh, medical because that, uh, that that seemed like a good career track. So for a kid who's interested in science, yeah, sure.
1: So what what drew you to Johns Hopkins? Other than it's a great university, what was it that drew you there? Well, I had done a, a high school summer program there, um, and so I was uh,
0: familiar with the sort of the vibe of the school. It's very. Um, it takes pride in its ability to get undergraduates um, involved in research. And so I did that um, as an undergraduate. I, I would take the bus down from the undergraduate campus uh, once or twice a week to the to the medical school, I various projects in a basic science lab, um, and uh, they sort of trusted me to figure out you know, certain aspects of making a, a fusion protein and to, to do t- protein purification and uh, uh, developing pictures of of cells from a confocal microscope. And it, it was all new and fascinating. And yeah. it, felt, it felt like uh, you're, you know, helping to, to move the cutting edge of uh, science forward. It was It was exciting.
1: So, but it was the experience you had in the ED that really kind of sold you on medicine.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, one of the most formative experiences of my medical career was once I got to the ED, there was this older um, African-American nurse who was, um, he was like a grizzled vet, like he reminded me of like a drill sergeant, and he sat us all down, it was about 50% Hopkins undergrads like me and 50% retirees. (laughs) <laughs> but he, he was addressing ourselves directly to the Hopkins undergrads, most of whom were pre-med like me. And he basically said, You guys think you're so smart. Johns Hopkins, pre-med. Well, let me tell you, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. So you can solve an equation. You step out in that ED and you don't know how to draw blood. You don't know what a acute MI is. You don't know blah, blah, blah. And you're not going to learn it here, but here you're going to learn how to get the right patient to the right room. You're going to learn how to uh, comfort people who are suffering. And that's what you're here for. Don't don't think you're any kind of hot stuff. I was like, oh, man, okay. But he was right. I didn't know anything. Sure. <laughs> um, and and it was a very important experience um, for, for me in my career, and I suspect for a lot of folks who went through that Um Uh, volunteer experience.
1: That's awesome. So you obviously went through undergraduate and made the decision, yes, I do want to uh, go to medical school. You chose Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, uh, where you earned your MD. What drew you to Case Western? Well, Case Western Reserve was known for its integrated
0: curriculum, meaning you didn't have just an anatomy class and you did all anatomy and then another physiology class. They did all physiology. They they did it by committee. They said so for three weeks, you would do kidney anatomy. You would go in and do the the dissection. You would do renal physiology, and you would do um, uh, pathology and, and look at kidneys under the microscope um, and do it by system in that way. So that that was interesting to me. That it was it was done in a. a, a uh, a different way from a lot of other medical schools that's meant to help make it um, more intuitive how you actually, so that your pre-clinical years actually reflect the way you think about these systems in your in your clinical years.
1: So you had had this early experience in the ED that you said really kind of shaped uh, your perspective or your desire to, to continue with medicine, but you didn't choose, I want to say like you didn't choose to do emergency medicine you chose something else at what point in your so typically you're you know sometime in your in your medical school you have to make a choice about which direction you want to go with your residencies how did you come to make your choices and i and i and noticed kind of the unique plural there um for you but uh how did you come to make your choices um and, uh, and and where did that happen? And when did that happen during your during your experience? So you know, most folks I think choose their, a lot of a lot of
0: folks choose their residency and their specialty training track during their third year of medical school because that's when you're doing your um, uh, core rotations through the specialties that every physician needs to know something about. So internal medicine, uh, surgery, psychiatry, uh, OBGYN. Um, And I went into my third year knowing only one thing or thinking I knew only one thing, which was (laughs) that I'm not going to do psychiatry. And of course,
1: that's how how it played out, right? (laughs) So and um why not what, what was your like what was the what was that deep knowledge that you had going into it that well you part knew of that it was not going to happen
0: yeah so <laughs> you know part of it was i think sort of a baseline bias against psychiatry as not real medicine which i think is out there and and a lot of folks had and i had it and another piece of it was stories of really difficult psychosocial situations, people stuck in the hospital for long periods of time, conflict between patients and residents. I was hearing from my friends on psychiatry rotations, including my my girlfriend at the time, who was a nursing student. It's like, oh, that whole environment sounds horrible. It's like, you know, that's not where I'm going to spend my career. And why I did my internal medicine rotation, I loved it. The things I liked about it were a couple, you know, one is just the orderly um, thinking you know that you know you create a differential diagnosis, a list of different possibilities of what's causing this um, this disease process, um, the you know the level of detail into gathering data, you know that that internists are are the thinkers and the diagnosers and I really enjoyed working with them and I respected so many of them. It's like, this is a thing I want to do. And yet when I got to psychiatry, as a rotation, I found that it wasn't quite like what I was hearing described. Um, I had two really good role models. One was on my inpatient side, a fellow who had been a plastic surgeon in France and came to the U.S. to be a psychiatrist, and um, he had a lot of experience with psychodynamic theory, which even by then, even now, now it's, you know, in the 90s, was really waning in its influence on the field. but um, And he acknowledged that, but he taught a lot about it and showed how understanding psychodynamic uh, processes in people's interactions can help um, inform and improve how you relate to your patients and how you make a team function. And, um, and that was fascinating to me. But, but even more powerful than that, was just watching patients get better. I think there's this pervading sense that psychiatric conditions are chronic. They never get better. It's so depressing because they're depressed. But just sitting day after day with a patient who is psychotic and gradually watching them understand their delusions are not real or not as terrifying as they once thought, um, that the voices become less and less... Um, demeaning and um, quieter day after day after day. And then realizing this is just like watching somebody's infection get better. This is just like watching somebody's diabetes get under better control, even though you're not going to cure it once and for all, you're helping this person. And it's, it's a, it's a daily torment to be psychotic. Um, So being part of that was really powerful. It's like, this is, this is, a great way to you know help help people. My se- second role model was a community psychiatrist. He was sort of a, a young, dynamic medical director of a community mental health center, uh, making improvements to their care delivery model. He was standing up programs that were getting evidence based practices into place, uh, helping secure funding, and and that was. You know, sort of showing the psychiatrist as a leader uh, of an agency, and um, was also an appealing role model. But but the thing that really you know sort of made me begin to think about combining both of these fields was when I saw a psychiatry resident order a medicine consult, an internal medicine consult for a simple urinary tract infection. Oh, it's like yeah, I'm not sure I can be a psychiatrist by itself if what that means is i lose the feeling of capacity to deal with you know
1: medical really problems basic that- that's really basic right i mean i mean right. I'm, I'm i i just play a doctor on tv so I, you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, that's that- really basic i mean i kind of get that one you know so so I, huh. that's why I started uh, looking
0: at combined programs of which there's a handful in the country then as now, the places have shifted over time, but uh, there's still not that many of us. Um, so I, I did end up doing a combined internal medicine, psychiatry residency program.
1: I think a lot of people don't realize, I mean, and maybe I'm, I mean, I've, I, uh, that when you go into that, a specialty uh, you know, you do kind of give up some general, like some general knowledge um, uh, because you dive very deeply into the one, to the one a- area. I, I, I So when did you find out that like, like this was not a thing I knew about until I ran into some folks who had done dual residencies. Like when did that become, when did somebody say, Hey, that's a thing. Like you can do that. As is often the case these days,
0: I learned about this from the internet. Um, It it just so happened there was a combined family practice psychiatry program at Case Western Reserve, but I was not interested in family practice. Um, I was more interested in internal medicine. So
1: um, I- More interested uh, in adult or was that like- Right, in adult
0: and in more you know potentially hospital medicine, more, more severely ill folks, family practice tends to focus more on- outpatient, um, settings. Uh-huh. Um, right. and, and so, um, there, there's a organization for folks in this combined field, I connected up with, with them as well and, and learn more about it through the association of medicine and psychiatry.
1: Well, that's, that's really, that's interesting that there's a, well, of course there's an organization, right? There's an organization for everything that's, uh, in the United States as, as Tocqueville said. Right. Um, so, so, um, so you chose, so you chose a program that allowed you to do both. That's a, that's a pretty big commitment, right? Cause it, it isn't like you get How much overlap was there such that, cause you're taking on two residents. That's like getting two degrees you're, you're doing. Yeah, so how so much that, of that is you're able to combine and kind of shorten the combined, the total. So, um uh, uh, internal medicine
0: residency is three years, psychiatry is four years, They make it five years by essentially turning all your medicine electives into psychiatry
1: requirements and vice versa. Okay. Wow. And so you chose to do this at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Yes. So what was the draw to Dartmouth-Hitchcock's program? Well, I wanted to find a
0: program where it was clear that it wasn't one department trying to use the combined program to strengthen their residency class in other words you can find combined programs where there's a maybe weaker psychiatry department and a strong medicine department so they 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 put a combined program together to try to get better applicants to their psychiatry department so i ruled those those programs out once i you know sort of screened for that and then there is the geographical consideration that this is closer to my uh, wife's family, and 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 Dartmouth really had a, a strong set of professors that or attendings that they exposed you to in the interviewing process that made it clear that uh, you know, these are folks I'd like to work with. The, the residents, the vibe among the residents is an important feature when you pick a residency program, and um, I, I, I like that in, in both departments as well.
1: So, what was it like? You jump into it. What was it like doing both residencies at the same time? And what was it like kind of trying to balance and running back and forth between two different mindsets? Or was it it more, or or is there less of that? Yeah. So you end up not
0: being fully integrated into either program because very quickly you're out of sync with your classmates, right? You're falling behind everyone. By the time you're a junior resident, people that you were an intern with are your senior resident, right? So um, it, it's a little bit uh, strange to always feel like you're a little behind the eight ball until, until the very end. And then you're okay. like, mm, I'm mostly up to speed, but like you were mentioning before, it is absolutely true that you cannot be a hundred percent the internist and the psychiatrist, if, if you have to keep up with both fields um, and your, um, your mind is, Always set switching, as the psychologists say, between the ah. two the two worlds and the two kind of professional cultures and the two ways to, to deal with problems. Because there are there are different professional cultures and different fields. That said, it still works. And your your skills from the other specialty are highly valued whenever you're stepping into,
1: you know, either either of those two professional roles. Okay. Set switching. I like that. So you, you, you make it through, what do you feel like you as a, you know, coming out of that program, what do you feel like you as having completed both really brought to or or could bring to the team?
0: Well, I used to say that as a med psych trained physician is kind of like what they used to say about lasers, that it's a solution in search of a problem. (laughs) <laughs> that we know, we know there's problems out there that you can solve. There's got to be, but but there's not like just existing med psych jobs just to walk right into where it's all fully formed. So many of us go into positions knowing that we're going to have to shape them once we arrive, knowing that um, you know, we're going to have to lead an organization to understand better how to take care of the medical issues of their patients. If you're not mental health organization or vice versa in a, a medical organization. Um, so, so coming out of residency, my idea was that I, I really liked working in the severely mentally ill population. So for those who are not in the field, what that really defines is folks who qualify for services in a community mental health center, uh, because they've got so much, functional impact from their mental illness, that they may have trouble holding down a job, uh, they have trouble living independently, things like this. So uh, it's a you know, state-defined eligibility, um, often folks with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, very severe depression. And these folks often end up getting some treatment in state psychiatric hospitals like uh, New Hampshire Hospital as well. So I worked at New Hampshire Hospital, out of residency. And with the idea that I would be treating patients with medical illnesses, would be preferentially admitted to my unit so I could use both my skills and uh, embarked on a uh, research project to understand how to treat cardiometabolic risk in these patients, the risk of heart attacks and strokes, um, which is much higher uh, in this population.
1: I was going to ask you, with your interest in severely mentally ill, do they have? Do they tend to have comorbidities that are not just are medical as opposed to psychiatric at a higher prevalence? So you're saying, yeah, they are. They do. They they have heart
0: attacks at more than twice the rate, um, other medical illnesses at uh, higher rates, um, and they die between 10 and 25 years earlier than the general population, and it's not due to suicide and accidents. It's due to medical illnesses, and a, a, a large chunk of that variance is explained by systems problems. That is to say that if you look at you know people with schizophrenia coming into the ED with a heart attack, coming into the emergency department with chest pain, what fraction of those get aspirin immediately compared to the general population? The answer, much less. Um, and time to getting into the cath lab uh, within ninety minutes is the standard, much less. So these kinds of systems problems uh, speak to a leadership solution um, to try to address the mortality risk that these folks face. Um, it's a it's it's a huge problem, and and not not enough uh, attention and resources,
1: I think, is is going to it. Well, I mean, it's based on your. I mean, just based on what you've just said, it seems like a state hospital environment would be the perfect place to send med psych qualified physicians then because of the level of complexity, the level of intensity. Uh, Yeah, I found
0: stuff to do. (laughs) But but also consult services in a general medical hospital. Uh, Psychiatric consultants live and work. I feel like I live, but really work in uh, general (laughs) medical hospitals, doing um, you know safety assessments uh, for suicidal patients, um, helping Mm. figure out changes in mental status, uh, helping manage schizophrenia for folks who are admitted for medical issues, and um, you know again a a formative experience I had in that role, which which I I, uh, took on after I worked at the state hospital. Um, I spent about two and a half or three years um, as a consulting psychiatrist in a medical hospital and had the opportunity to care for a fellow with schizophrenia who was critically ill, intubated uh in multi-system organ failure in the ICU, but from a reversible infectious process. And I remember talking with the pulmonologist who was the attending for this patient um, And he said, you know, I'm not sure why we're even really continuing to treat this patient because what kind of quality of life does a patient with schizophrenia have? And the answer is you don't know what kind of quality of life they have just based on the fact of their diagnosis. It so happened that this patient uh, whose brother was his guardian insisted on continued aggressive care. And the patient walked out of the hospital with good control of his medical illnesses and good control of his psychosis and had really good quality of life after this after this illness. And that's when it became clear to me what we're really pushing against when we're talking about these systems barriers to uh, patients with SMI, severe mental illness, getting appropriate and adequate care is, is, is stigma. And stigma... Is often talked about as if it's like, you know, people consciously not liking or wanting to be around people with mental illness. But that's not how it really plays out, at least not when it comes to this problem. It plays out as good people thinking and wanting to do the right thing ethically, but not understanding what mental illness is and not understanding or appreciating the impact that that. Kind of distorted view of mental illness and the mental health system uh,
1: plays upon the decisions they would make. Can I, can I take this to a super simple level for a second and just ask you to talk about the difference between psychiatry and psychology, and what's the difference between you know if I'm going to see a both doctors right. Just because, because many of the listeners here are going to be my students who don't, who haven't had that exposure yet. So, so at a really basic level, what's the difference? Absolutely. So this
0: I'm glad you asked this because it gives me the opportunity to answer it the way that I wish more people would answer it. So a lot of times people answer it that it's the difference between prescribing medications and not prescribing medications. But I don't think that's the most important difference because I don't think prescribing medications is the most important thing that I do as a psychiatrist. So the, I think it's the difference is more about history and culture. That psychiatry comes from medicine. It comes from Doctors who were trained took in a medical school, took the Hippocratic oath, and decided. Initially, in the 1700s, some of them decided that they would work in a psychiatric hospital and see if they could figure out how to help these patients. So their 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 approach is in the tradition of diagnose, trying to diagnose the illness, creating a creating a category in which a patient fits and then figuring out which treatments work in that category you know it's that's 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 the the medical tradition um and so it's hospital based you know originally and the the theory and the habits of thought come from other are, are like other doctors whereas a psychologist is more out of the academic world you know, philosophers, William James, folks who were trying to understand how people thought. And many psychologists go on to measure uh, aspects of how people think. Think about the um, IQ testing that developed during World War I to help figure out who was good for what job in the army. Um, it's a It's an academic pursuit. And then from that tradition, Many of them found, you know, I they could they could help people as well and learn psychotherapy, learn ways to teach and coach people uh, how to work in groups, that sort of thing. So it's it's more academic in flavor, meaning trying to have a rigorous, systematic approach to how thinking works and then applying it uh, wherever they can. So medications, of course, is an important part of. The differences between what licenses allow and, and all this kind of thing, but even more important, I think, is that historical context.
1: Okay, and let me throw a third one in there: uh social work, and and uh, because we uh, you, here at UNH we have a big social work program, do a lot of train a lot of of people who will do therapy from that modality. How is that that third modality different from the other two? Sure. So social workers
0: are are a a third tradition. So they they come out of this idea that there ought to be professionals that help people adapt in their lives. So, you know, traditionally and and historically, that would be, you know, uh, helping to address poverty, helping to address immigrants uh, uh, coming to this country and trying to adapt to a new life. And so they became, you know, they became uh, important in hospitals to help facilitate discharges, but they also have their own, you know, competencies for psychotherapy um, and for um, uh, uh, helping to connect people to the proper resources. Embed what you know. If you embed a social worker into a primary care clinic, they may provide some psychotherapy. They may help connect them with a psychiatrist, and they translate the. Yeah, the needs of the system in the hospital are very different from the needs of the system in the outpatient world. And so the social worker goes between those systems and tries to make them both serve the needs of the patient. Um, So you find them in in many different settings because of their skills and and, um, uh, doing that kind of task.
1: So that's useful, I think, for people to kind of understand the broader array of 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 people who are trying to provide these services. To oversimplify that, like you said, like most people think, drugs not drugs. But there's a I I it seems like you're. If I could try to simplify that, more of a disease focus versus a thinking focus versus a social focus. Is that kind of? That's right. They all. So a, a discipline that we haven't mentioned yet
0: is nursing.
1: Okay. So
0: right. mental health nursing is its own flavor that. Uh, maybe not the most qualified to discuss, but I'll highlight that psychiatric advanced practice nurses are an important piece of the mental health system as well. And what you're mentioning about disease focus, I think is, is an important distinction between psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners, both of whom are prescribers, but psychiatrists spend a lot more time, especially in uh, your third year of residency, when you're doing a lot of outpatient psychotherapy, um, that's that's a that's a concentrated experience that APRNs don't have as much, um, and that's a disease focus. That's a psychodynamic and CBT um, training experience. Whereas APRNs, I think, from their nursing sort of professional background, have in many ways more of a a, a patient focused perspective uh, on on the patient's actual, like, lived experience of, of the healthcare system, of the disease, of the, how, how it affects their, their family, how it affects their um, ability, to, and what affects their ability to manage their disease. Because uh, nurses are, are, are really just are right in that um, lived experience of the disease more than the psychiatrists tend to be, in, in, both in their training and in their um, uh, regular work. So I think that's a complementary.
1: Yeah. I mean uh, obviously they're all complementary, right? So there's yeah. if we drew a Venn diagram, there'd be overlaps on all of them to some degree. Right. That's there, right. Are, there are things where they do unique things, but then there's a lot of overlap here. So it's, and, and there's rehab disciplines as well. So I think that
0: this, you know, the Venn diagram um is a is a rich interdisciplinary um network that um if something's missing in a patient's care, you are missing out on something.
1: Yeah. Well, so all of these things I, I, I'm, I'm assuming are, or all of these professions are represented at the New Hampshire state hospital. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. That was where you started and where you are today. So we'll, we'll have an opportunity to kind of circle full, do full circle with you. you. So you you went to the New Hampshire state hospital as your first role post residency So let's talk a little bit about the state hospital. So New Hampshire state hospital, what is it? What's its mission? How does it fit into New Hampshire and to the New Hampshire health system? So it's a state psychiatric hospital. New Hampshire
0: hospital serves patients who are involuntarily committed primarily, meaning they um, have been uh, assessed by a clinician to be a danger to themselves or others, And a judge has agreed with that. Um, And so there's a court order, which requires most of our patients to be here. Um, So the the role in the system is to stabilize the most acute patients in the mental health system. So that's a change from its founding mission, right? Um, In the 1840s, if you had a mental illness, you would just get sent to the state hospital to live perhaps the rest of your life. Um, involuntarily
1: or, uh, maybe
0: both some, some combination. Yeah. 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 Um, when the community mental health act was passed in the sixties, the idea was we're going to empty out these overcrowded state hospitals and have them served by community health centers, community mental health centers, um, which throughout, um, uh, the state right now, there are 10 and, um, they do treat thousands of patients who would have otherwise been in a state hospital at this point in history, if it weren't for their existence. So I always figure if this, uh, if, if not for the community mental health centers, all those thousands of patients gradually would be drifting back to the state hospital because that's where they get their beds, their therapy, their, what they call functional support services that make sure they have food in the house and and things like this. Um, the state hospital serves those that that real that either have an acute flare-up of their mental illness. That's going to happen. Relapse is part of recovery, um, or those patients who have never quite gotten to recovery, or are really chronically um, not able to 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 live in the community mental health system as it's constituted. Uh, yeah. Of which there are a small number that that remain.
1: So this process you were talking about uh, following the community mental health um I'm going to get that wrong community mental health uh act was it yes I, yes. I should know that um it was a process called deinstitutionalization right so we and that was uh, I find that a fascinating thing i mean i think a lot of folks have seen like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and i mean that was an that was an influential you know piece of the decision that that made there's some there's quite a bit of discussion now that we've gone too far in the other direction that maybe we should have more uh institutional capacity um your thoughts on that
0: well i mean i think commonsensically it's got to be possible that there are It's got to be possible to have too few state hospital beds, right? Right. We're never going to get to zero. Um, But I think um, there's also clear gaps in our community mental health system infrastructure, uh, types of services that can and should be stood up that would um, help to um, get some of our more stable patients here step
1: down to a lower level of care okay um well so so the most most severely ill mentally ill are placed at um the new hampshire state hospital usually involuntarily so it is it is a locked unit um or locked i don't know, what's the right word for that uh, it's a secure, secure facility secure facility okay thank you um so, i mean um how many people are work there how many beds how big is this organization so it's about um
0: 600 employees okay um we have a capacity of 180 beds um and that, that that's the answer
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> um so so i mean one of the things that that we all know is new hampshire has a shortage of psych psychiatric beds of this nature right we have a lot of folks who are um holding in emergency rooms um because there aren't enough inpatient beds whether at the new hampshire state hospital or some other facility uh which i guess goes back to my deinstitutionalization question like why why do we have this shortage why isn't why isn't there a response i mean it seems to me so as an economist it seems to me there ought to be a market response like that's a profit opportunity isn't it like what's going on what is why why from your perspective without getting you in trouble what, <laughs> what is it what is it that's going on that's that's like this isn't happening so we have so i always make the
0: analogy that if you know if the mental health system is like a stream Patients moving through from the emergency room back out to the community, and New Hampshire hospitals, like a dam, right? We've got a, we've got, we've, you know, got some patients slowed down. There, they need to stay here for a while, but right now they're overflowing the banks into the emergency rooms. If we if we dredge out the dam, we can hold more water, and it'll go down for a little bit, but it's going to overflow again unless we open the gates of the dam. We need to get the flow going. And the the rate limiting step on that flow is housing in the community. We have um scores of patients at New Hampshire Hospital. I don't want to give you the you know a constantly changing number, but sure. Yeah. A very substantial number of our patients today are not at a hospital level of care. They can be treated safely in a lower level of supervision, but there's nowhere for them to go. The state knows this, and they have put out uh, a request for proposals for uh, um, supervised living um, facilities in the community, but they were not able to get anybody to bid on it. So that's, I think, the problem is how do we how do we get an appropriate housing arrangement? Is it through some RFP? Is it through some other partnership? Uh, I don't know what the answer is, but yeah. until, until we've got that um, ability to discharge patients to the community, we're not going to have a fundamental solution to this problem.
1: So you have, so the result there is you have scores of people who could be discharged if there was a place for them to go. And then we have scores of people waiting in community hospital emergency rooms for a bed at the state hospital. That's right. So it's, so it's a, it's a backup that, okay. So that, I mean, I, I mean, it's not okay, but it makes, that makes sense. Um, well, I wanted to, so, so here you are brand new grad, brand new, shiny grad with your, with your dual, you know, residency. What, how does it feel being out, in practice, what are you learning in that now you're, you know, you make the transition from student to attending, what's that like? And what are you, what are you learning in those early years? So I think that, you know, one of the things
0: that was a key lesson in the early years was truly understanding how diagnosis and psychopharmacology um, is not the most important skill that you're bringing to your treatment team, that, that, um, you know, leadership tasks, that negotiation with, uh, other agencies, those types of things are actually, um, where much of the value you're bringing to your team, uh, your, your, uh, um, your treatment team, um, comes from, but, um, you know, another, another formative event that, um, I recall from my first couple months of being in attending was the um, patient I saw who had either catatonia, meaning like a, a, you know being mute and s- holding strange poses, being kind of what they call waxy flexibility, where you can move their arm and it just stays in the same spot. Wow. Right. Or it could have been catatonia or it could have been, a, a type of medication side effect or it could have been something else. I wasn't sure. And so there was a, a very senior attending here who's re- semi retired, just kind of doing vacation fill. And he was, he was pretty famous. He had done work on some of the seminal medications early on in, um, the transition from, um, psychodynamic to biological psychiatry. Um, and so I, I I came up to him and I said, you know, I've got this patient. Here's the problem. Here's the questions I have about it. And this uh, this August psychiatrist, he looks right at me and says, "You're right. That's a tough one." And shrugs and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a and, minute. <laughs> I, and that's that's the moment when I thought, oh. I guess I'll be attending now. I don't get to ask anyone. My my questions are no longer about what I know and are are sometimes gonna be about what is known.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. And um so I, I just had to give it a that, that's, take my best crack at it. Yeah. And that's and that's the nature, right? That's the nature of a profession, like as you reach that full level of practice. Mm-hmm. So you spent 4 years about you know of your first the first part of your career at the New Hampshire State Hospital, you went to Concord. Um what was your Concord Hospitals, which is a acute care community hospital? What was um what were you what made you decide to make the the transition over to Concord? Well, two things. One was that I had reached a point where I
0: had decided that I didn't want to do research as a primary career track. I started to get clarity that what what I liked about research was not necessarily the the entirety of the process of research. I, I did like a lot of it, but but what I liked the best about it was leading the research team, and like ha- having a role of. You know, helping people solve problems, helping people develop their career, stuff like this. You know, I had a mental health worker who wanted to eventually grow up to be a psychiatrist and I was sort of taking an interest in, in helping mentor him a little bit. And I was like, this is, this is the stuff that I actually am the most drawn to and, and I don't need to do the full research gamut to do that. So, um, so, so that realization plus uh, truly a financial consideration where um, my wife had just, it was the um, financial, global financial crisis. My crisis, wife had just right. lost her job. 809, right? Yeah. yeah. And so this other position helped fill in that gap. So those two things together and then thinking, you know what? Maybe maybe I actually want to have a couple of different types of jobs in my career as an experience to help build up um my skills for, for a leadership position down the road, all that together went into that decision.
1: So you were the director of consultation psychiatry at Concord hospital. What is that? So that, that means that I and a nurse practitioner. So I directed one nurse practitioner <laughs> Big team.
0: <laughs> uh, we're the team that um, saw patients after overdoses and did lethality assessments um, Saw patients with uh, severe mental illness and admitted for medical reasons and helped help the medical team manage that. And um, also just random, interesting psychiatric questions that com- came up. A lot of c- competency um, or capacity assessments as well, folks who may or may not have had the ability to consent to a medical decision and helping the, the teams understand whether they um, needed a guardian or a surrogate decision maker and that kind of
1: thing. I see. So, Okay. Yeah. So you did this for a few years and then you moved to a really interesting, uh, role. You became the chief medical officer for the New Hampshire state prison system, right? Is that right? Yes. yes. Okay. So that's a fascinating, uh, role. Uh, so, so not psychiat, not psychiatrist per se, but, uh, but chief medical officer. So this is, so, so again, seems like a perfect fit for someone with your background. Well, I'd say this period of my career was the one where I
0: had re- probably the best balance of doing both medical and psychiatric work. Um, I did do psychiatry. I was the assigned psychiatrist for the secure housing unit uh, which or special housing unit, which is what a lot of folks call solitary confinement. Um, so I saw... Patients that are basically a day a week. Um, And my chief medical officer role um, encompassed the the healthcare service, the health services department. So, clinical oversight of the primary care clinicians there, as well as uh, utilization management. So, I was kind of like uh, overseeing the use of the healthcare resources. And, um, you know, policy development, I'd say, you know, if you ask me, what's the the thing in my career I'm the most proud of that that I think I, I would have to say that it comes out of this part of my career and setting up a prison hospice service
1: oh, Pri- prior okay.
0: to my, prior to my time there, when patients were dying in prison, the protocol was to put them in a isolation tank what they called it basically a room with nothing in it so that nobody had to see a dying person. And the nurses would check their vital signs every eight hours. And that was, that it. that sounds awful. And it came about that way because they were concerned about diverting morphine or um, okay. uh, people exploiting the patients or visitors coming in and bringing in morphine stuff like this. So they couldn't have visitors either. So it was a bit of a task to work with security as well as to work with um, uh, nursing staff to develop a, a comfort care protocol. Uh, we got a cons- consultation from comfort hospitals, uh, palliative care service, which is awesome. Um, and um, we worked with a chaplain to develop a hospice volunteer system of the inmates who would come in and sit with the patients and help care for them. Um, that, that was a big lift that, that, you know, there's security risks in bringing inmates of that number and that frequency into a healthcare environment. So that, that was um, a project over about two years, maybe. To, to implement. Oh, wow.
1: I have, uh, I have a, book about uh the um hospice service at angola in louisiana yeah uh, uh and, and there's a movie about it as well right so that was part of the training our, our our guys watched that movie oh wow okay yeah i mean that is just i'll put a link in that in the show notes and it's just a stunning that was a Forrest whitaker movie i think and the book is just beautiful um serving well. life so that's yeah right right yes. wow that must've had an amazing impact on uh, talk. I mean, talk about that. What, what was the impact on obviously on, on the patients, but, uh, what about on your, the participants? Well, the, the
0: volunteers volunteers uh, very commonly would say, I was, I wasn't able to be there for my father when he died. Cause I'm here. And so this is my attempt to kind of pay that back. Some variation of that was very common. Um, Many but not all of them were active in Kairos or other prison ministry services. I'd say maybe two-thirds of them were. You know, if you want to avoid prison gangs, this is a little prison advice. A, a good way to do it is to get involved in some sort of prison ministry that, that feels right to you to, to do. Um it's it's just really protective of of um. In my experience of getting sucked into the, the violence cycle of the gangs, um, and this this was a way for some folks who couldn't, you know, in their conscience go into you know a, a more explicit Christian ministry service, they could get involved in this service, um, and it had a very definite uh, mission to it that that they could buy into and and, and serve a similar purpose. And for the um, nursing staff, it was a huge morale lift because they didn't want to be part of a system of essentially isolating dying patients. They, it was very, you know, they talk about moral hazard during COVID, nurses feeling that grating on them of, of like excluding visitors from dying patients. That, I saw that with these patients back then. Um, and it really helped help, help nursing
1: morale how did you work that out i mean so the the security staff have legitimate concerns like you're i mean what you you alluded to earlier like that, that they have so i guess that's a, a more and, and maybe specifically for the hospice but then more broadly for medical care balancing the concerns and the function of the hospital uh, excuse me the function of the prison versus versus the you know, your obligations as a as a physician and, and caregiver, how did you navigate those? That must have been, I mean, that must have been a constant tension, I guess, is, is what I'm alluding it's a, to. It's a huge topic and a con- it was a constant theme.
0: And, um, you know, specifically with these volunteers, we had to give security the ability to review each potential volunteer's record and um, to create criteria for exclusion from the program you know negotiating that process was was a process. but on the broader theme, you know the, the, the prison is a resource constrained environment, but it's not in the way that I, I imagined it to be and I think many people would imagine that that it's more about you know s- simple dollars and cents. That's a piece of it, but more so, it's about staff and staff time. How many um, staff do you have to run patients to the hospital for screening colonoscopies? When you've got patients who are also need to go to court, who also now just had a seizure, need to go to the emergency room. So you know that's a constraint. Um, there's a constraint on one-on-one observation people for suicide, suicidal patients, you know, it, it really stresses the organization when you've got, um, you know, maybe half a dozen patients on suicide watch. So the question will be, you know, does so-and-so really need the one-on-one sitter or can we just do 15 minute rounds? Right. And you want to be a good citizen, but your job is to, to keep the patient safe. Um, Easy to say in theory, difficult when you're really in in, in an operation. That you know, and, and knowing as you know, wearing an administrative hat, that if you're a, you know, if you're putting an officer on this patient's sitting watch, maybe that's an officer who can't take a patient to the emergency room, right? Yeah, I
1: mean it's it's it. You or know, prevent it's, violence, right? Which oh, is a you yes. know, like a a public health kind of perspective on the, right. That's right. You can't, you can't
0: fully ignore the real life implications of um, these decisions. And yet you also can't ignore your professional obligations, which sometimes can be very black and white and you, and you have to see them that way.
1: What are, what were, what kind of unique medical challenges did you face that were things you wouldn't see in outside of a prison system?
0: Um, well, I certainly, so I always figured that a correctional system is like the rest of society, but magnified. <laughs> so wh- whatever is happening in society is just magnified in the prison. Racism, magnified, right? I mean, you'll have, it's not just that there's, you know, a sense that, you know, this race, racial group and this racial group have conflict in this neighborhood. You know, it's not just a vague you know, kind of mutually understood unspoken thing, like in the rest of society, there's this gang and there's that gang and they're fighting today. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so from a certain perspective, it's the same, but there are some things which are perhaps novel. Um, I certainly saw a lot more genital mutilation than I ever saw any other part of my career. Um, There's things that just become kind of fashionable ways to express despair so you'll have a wave of people swallowing foreign objects you'll have a wave of people cutting themselves you'll have a wave of people inserting foreign objects into various orifices and it's an
1: expression of despair you know at root root. yeah which comes back to psych psychiatry that's right what did you bring uniquely to that larger perspective than from your mental health training? Well, these
0: these injuries play out in the medical sphere. You'll have nurses who conceive of themselves primarily as medical nurses, correctional medical nurses, taking care of the injury. You'll have medical doctors and nurses primarily rounding on them as the main contact. And again, it's not about prescribing Prozac versus Zoloft. It's about helping them understand countertransference, which is psychodynamic. It's Freud. It's people understanding why you hate this patient, even if you can't say that out loud. It's it's maybe unconscious why, why the provider
1: hates the patient.
0: That's right, and like okay. being being able to talk about that. You know, reading a paper about countertransference hate, and you know, bringing that to the medical staff so that they you know so that it doesn't play out as semi-conscious, annoyed expressions that you put towards your patient. It plays out as a conscious discussion with your colleagues so that you can act professional in front of this patient who is so
1: difficult. So you were at the prison system for uh, almost six years, which seems like quite a long time. You mentioned your role in standing up the hospice program what else do you look back on that time with you know uh positive experience like what positive gratifying experiences do you carry with you from that time other than, than the hospice
0: well i'd say th- the other major thing that i was involved in was moving from a paper medical record to an electronic medical record and um i do not think of myself as a highly tech savvy person and yet um that was my job because we didn't have a big enough department that we could have sort of a project champion amongst the medical providers for this. I was the the medical provider's voice in the room and making all kinds of decisions about uh, acquiring the, the, uh, the product and adapting it for our purposes and things like this. So by the time it was go live, I, I was pretty conversant in this product. I knew how to make it work and do the things that we were trying to make it do. And that, you know, as psychiatrists say, that felt egodystonic to me. I felt like <laughs> I, I was acting like a different person for who I actually am. Because I am not the guy who goes in and says, I know how to use this computer. But I was for a bit. And um, that that project of getting that system up and running um, dominated a big chunk of of the time I spent in corrections. Um, In some ways, I thought, you know, there, maybe there would, would have been other things I'd rather been spending my time on to improve patient care, um, given my own choice, but this was necessary. And, you know, our team did a pretty good job at it. And I'm I'm proud of my role in that. Cool.
1: So you, you left, um, you left the prison system to go to be the chief medical officer CMO for Riverbend Community Mental Health, which is a community mental health center. We've kind of talked about community mental health centers a bit, but maybe talk a little bit about what is Riverbend and maybe a little more specifics about community mental health centers and what they do. So community mental health centers in New Hampshire are nonprofit
0: organizations, um, each one uh, in one of 10 catchment areas. That contract with the state to take care of folks who have severe mental illness. Um, so their their primary goal um, originally was essentially to get people out of state hospitals and keep them out of state hospitals. Okay. Um, over time, as a nonprofit, Riverbend specifically adopted a mission statement of caring for the mental health of, of its community, and so that's that's in a way a broader mission than just. Uh, the original vision, but it's highly integrated with Concord Hospital and Concord Hospital's affiliated outpatient um, uh, practices as well. Um, so it's, a, it's one of the larger, it's, it's the largest or the second largest uh, community mental health center in the state, in part because of its affiliation there and the grants that it, it, that it acquires to deliver services to the capital area
1: so this is a this is a an organization that provides its its primary purpose for existence is providing care for severely mentally ill patients who are in an outpatient are able to be in an outpatient setting
0: say, historically that is historically. true okay um i i I think that at this point, caring for kids, caring for elders um it, it has a number of other really important missions that are sort of co-equal with that original vision.
1: okay. What does it mean to be the chief medical officer for a community mental health clinic? So
0: you directly supervise the prescribers, so psychiatric nurse practitioners, as well as psychiatrists, um, and provide you're sort of a liaison between the prescribing professionals and the rest of the agency. A thing that maybe isn't intuitive is that community mental health centers are not primarily run by psychiatrists. In terms of driving policy and programs and, and leadership of the of the clinical efforts, um, it's really primarily run by social workers. Um, that Interesting. Okay. The, the services that are provided are case management. That's what actually pays the bills, is the case management, not the prescribers. Um, and what they call functional support. Like I described earlier, going into people's houses, making sure that um, you know they're not living in squalor, that they make all their medical appointments, that their meds are set up properly. Um, those workers in the community um, form the bulk of the effort that community mental health centers provide to adults anyway. Um, they're also in the schools and doing other programs for kids. So my role, in that way is a a lot of advice uh, in terms of clinical management, high profile cases. I'll definitely be, you know, sort of overseeing. Um, But it's, it's more kind of soft influence than it is direct supervisory influence because so many of those services are outside the scope of the providers, the
1: prescribing uh, professionals. Going into the homes and so forth. Yeah. Uh, Fascinating. And, and, I'm glad we talked about the social work role. Cause that ties right back into what you're saying. I did not know that, that it had sort of that, that the community mental health centers had that kind of social work DNA in them. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so you were there not all that long and you made the decision, uh, to transition back to the state hospital where you are today, um, to become the chief medical officer for the state hospital. Um, and that was in spring of 2020, maybe winter, late winter, early spring of 2020, uh, late yep. winter, 19, early March. spring, March, March, 2020. So, so, th- but the actual transition date was going to be March or th- that's you...
0: why I made the decision.
1: Oh, that's when you made the decision. Yeah. I made the decision uh, right
0: before the <laughs> NBA like nothing de- big was happening. <laughs> <laughs> like the day before the NBA decided to close for COVID. And that really set off a cascade of, of events. Right. <laughs> so, so let me. You know, I, I would never have left Riverbend at that point if it had not been for this very particular position. I I really liked the agency. I liked my team, um, and I grew to like them even better as we um, uh, responded to COVID. Um, but and I, I'd not really been there long enough to leave. So, right. Uh, but I'll tell you, in the back of my head, ever since I left New Hampshire Hospital in, uh, I guess, 2010, um, in the back of my head, my thought was, you know, I I think at some point in my career, I'd like to be the chief medical officer of New Hampshire Hospital. And so many of the choices I made in terms of career, um, uh, as well as kind of extracurriculars, like um, uh, uh, serving as a president of the New Hampshire Psychiatric Society, um, uh, doing some expert witness work, were in the service of Making making me have the skills, practicing and learning the skills to have this this role uh, or a role like it. Um, so when this position came up, um, this it was, was one the, this probably this hard was, to not apply
1: kind of this thing. This was the like,
0: one job that I would be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll I'll I'd I'll, I'll leave for this. Yeah. Um, but the timing was weird because um, immediately upon announcing that I was going to do this. COVID became real, and um, uh, I had to um, uh, meet with our senior management team that weekend of uh, St. Patrick's Day, Um, and um, we pulled together a COVID uh, response plan um, in advance of any other mental health center, I think, um, thinking that, that far ahead that weekend. And so we hit the ground running that Monday morning, um, with social distancing plans, with um, uh, uh, messaging, and um, beginning to think about mask a- acquisition, um, and, and we were off to the races.
1: Wow. so what was the? So you've got these. Your your you kind of managed, you know, just kind of, you managed kind of, you both, you kept a foot in both organizations for a period of time. That's right. So for
0: five or six weeks, I think I um, spent one day a week at New Hampshire hospital. And then when I technically switched to New Hampshire hospital, I spent one day a week for about the same amount of time with Riverbend to, to help um, continue COVID management primarily.
1: So what was the initial response from Riverbend as this, you know, you've got a mission where, as we talked about, you've got personnel whose part of their mission is to go into patients' homes. And it's a very hands-on role. I mean, this is not a thing you can easily, I I imagine you probably had to transition to some degree to telehealth services, but it's not something you, you have to go see if people are okay, right? I mean, that's part of the role. We, we had already
0: gotten partway down the road of telehealth at this point. Um, about a month prior to this, I have got into an um, I, information technology department meeting, uh, which I didn't typically attend. But I went to this one and said, you know, I'd really like us to move forward quickly with uh, this particular tele, telehealth um, application. And um, there was some sense, okay, we'll think about that. Thanks for coming, Doctor Feder. Um, <laughs> and we've got we've got this other billing thing we'll work on, and this other thing, and whatever. And um, this was sort of uncharacteristic of me. I just sort of interrupted them and said, "There's there's a pandemic coming, and in six weeks, I want to be coughing up a lung in my bed, with telehealth on my iPhone, and our electronic medical record on my laptop." seeing patients in six weeks. And they looked at me like, what what got got into Fedor? Why is he such a jerk? We we got this billing thing. Did he hear? Yeah, it's it's really important. I I did, but I I didn't, you know, and I think they, you know, um, I I think we, you know, moved things along and there there was a lot to do. We had to acquire new servers to get, uh there was there's a lot of it infrastructure that had to be built. And they actually rose to the occasion. They, they met the, the, that deadline. I think that um, you know, another kind of inflection moment was um, when we had an agency managers meeting and I you know, I brought up this idea of flattening the curve. that was a new messaging uh, uh, mantra at the time and, and try to help folks understand, you know we're, we're actually going to be part of this. So once once the schools shut down, that was going to be sort of the, the well understood inflection point for the community. that our, our executive team understood that you know once that happens, we need to, we need to figure out how to change what we're doing and, and to support um, public health efforts the way we explained it to our staff was to say that we were defending ICU beds. We had understood from what happened in China and what was happening in Italy that that was the scarce resource, ventilators and ICU nurses and, and, and staff in the most acute sections of the hospital. And, what, and let's think about what it means for us as a mental health center to defend ICU beds. That meant getting psychiatric patients out of emergency rooms and keeping keeping them in the community so they weren't exposed to um, COVID infection in those risky areas and to free up resources to, to treat um, patients. Um, and so that was a statewide effort, not just our agency. We, we collaborated with hospitals and other mental health centers and um, many, many folks were involved in that effort. We, as you know, now we've got often, as we said, scores of patients uh, waiting for beds in, in emergency rooms, and we did at that time too. We reduced that to by ninety-three percent in two weeks, and at one point we were down to zero for a few hours—zero <laughs> psychiatric patients uh,
1: boarding yeah. in emergency rooms. How did you do that? Like, what was it that, and and why can't we just do that now? Like, just make it so. It's a complicated answer.
0: <laughs> um, we stood up, we had essentially put in place a, a crisis standards of care. We accepted okay. higher levels of risk for discharge. Um, we developed workflows to keep stable patients from decompensating. So patients who needed specialized treatments because of their severe mental illness, we found ways to do that in a socially distanced way through telehealth, through, we set, through tents through drive through injections You would literally drive a patient through and get your antipsychotic shot. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. Lots of specialized procedures we put in place that would not be sustainable um, or advisable for long-term management.
1: Yeah. Because you're taking on that. There's a reason that the the protocols are there to prevent bad outcomes, right? So you're taking more risk. Uh, um. So you, 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 are stepping back into the role as CMO, um, now, uh, so CMO of the state hospital, you talked a little bit about what that role was like at Riverbend. What is CMO like at the state hospital? What is, what is your, what is your primary role? What's a day to day in the life of, um, there? Well, it's, um, it's a fascinating
0: role. I, I feel very fortunate to have it, um, there's um, a lot of variety in the types of um, problems that I get to help out with. So, of course, I'm clinically supervising the psychiatrists and nurse practitioners uh, here at the state hospital and the clinical care they give. I'm, I'm very involved in developing uh, quality improvement programs. Um, I'm involved in academic um uh work because we are a um contracted uh agency the department of psychiatry at Dartmouth health is a contracted agency to the state to provide our provider so we are able to train medical students residents nurse practitioners students um, we do um, research um, and we do um, uh, contribute to education professional education Uh, for other um, uh, uh, mental health professionals in the community. So uh, I get to oversee a lot of this stuff. Um, I get to advocate for mental health. Um, I find myself in front of the legislature periodically, certainly talking with um, folks who help develop policy. Um, Right now, one of our major projects is um, setting up a forensic psychiatric hospital. So as you may know from um, uh, uh, the news, the most acute patients in our hospital who are too assaultive to uh, be safely treated here currently can be sent to the secure psychiatric unit at the state prison on an emergency transfer basis. Um, but these are civilly committed patients; They're, they've never been found guilty of a crime. Uh, so that's a pretty unusual process. It would be better if we had the ability to treat treat these patients safely within our own facility. So um, there is a plan to to build a forensic hospital um, on grounds here, basically physically attached to our hospital. Um, and but there's a lot of work to be done to. Uh, understand best how to, you know, with working with the architects, architect architects, to working with the architects to um, incorporate best practices from the, the newest and latest uh, uh, for similar facilities that have been built um, to look at our uh, statutory structure uh, to take away the, the emergency transfer Procedure and build a you know a different uh, framework for treating these patients to look at co- co- um, to look at competency to stand trial, which is a underrecognized gap, I think, in our current mental health system and its interface with the criminal justice system. Um, this facility could f- help us um, fill that gap to the benefit of both systems. Uh, and so working with our forensic psychiatry and psychology teams here to um, better leverage this new facility to fill that gap. So a lot of, a lot of things that I'm working on right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot. So, I mean, you led, you led this organization where or you were a, one of the senior leaders in this organization throughout COVID. What were the, I mean, a, a challenging role to begin with um, on top of that, how, how did how did Riverbend was outpatient? Now you're dealing with inpatients who are who are there involuntarily. How did how did you how did you have to change? How did the organization have to change? How did you have to change your leadership during that period as a result of the pandemic stresses?
0: Yeah, so I mean, some of the tasks that we had early on were figuring out how to run a COVID unit. For patients who were psychiatrically hospitalized. That, that that was going to be a different thing than what we were hearing in guidance for COVID units in medical hospitals. So, you know, we had a 10-bed unit that we could stand up or stand down into COVID care unit mode. Um, and um, that, that was a major task early on in my time here. Also, sort of prioritizing COVID mitigation measures. I helped develop a, a level system. So depending on the risk to the hospital, we would have be able to ratchet up or ratchet down our social distancing measures. Because in a place like this, limiting visitors, limiting groups, limiting contact with people, that really affects their care. Some folks kind of unfortunately live here, and even those that aren't, their social interactions is part of their treatment, is part of how they recover from their acute illness. So we really wanted to be minimizing social restrictions to the extent that was safe. And yet congregate living is a a tinderbox for a COVID outbreak. So so we had to really thread that needle properly, um, knowing that we have a geriatric psychiatry unit in the facility, and that is our vulnerable spot. So, you know, understanding, you know, what are we really trying to achieve? How do we strike these balances? And then how do we message it? Uh, COVID, and I suspect any pandemic, is less a medical emergency than it is a communication emergency. That's the lesson I learned in all this. And figuring out how to create trusted messengers, how to be a trusted messenger of, of the guidance, and knowing how to speak simultaneously to those people on your staff who feel like you're going too far and those who feel like you're not going far enough you'll never appease everybody but whatever message you put out has to has to be able to speak to those you know folks on either side of what you actually decided to do and help them know that their considerations their concerns are heard and part of the decision-making process and that you're just a human doing the best you can to to integrate it all and they'll be okay with that if you know they realize you're on you're on their side and you're doing you know you're doing the best that you
1: can with their concerns in mind what have you learned as a leader as a provider through the pandemic that you want to carry forward on on both kind of both sides of uh of what you do both as a clinician and as a leader as an organizational leader. Well one is that liaisons
0: matter partners between agencies who know each other and trust each other and that you can rely on to help you know as as much as I think a lot of organizational thinking can and should focus on the structures of the organization and how um, the uh, lines of reporting matter and the culture matters, all that kind of thing. That is all true. But in COVID, across agencies, people got to know each other and trust each other. And when dealing with other problems later, outside the context of COVID, those networks helped to solve problems that I'm not sure could have been solved efficiently or uh, appropriately um, if those um, trusting relationships hadn't been built. So I I think learning how to find and become a trusted liaison for other agencies is, is a really important role for leaders throughout organizations. Another thing is Learning how to be intentional about how you think about time horizons, to, to, to have some basis for thinking, okay, I can think two weeks into the future because this crisis is evolving that quickly, but I really can plan that far and I will. But I'm going to avoid the temptation to plan too far in the future because I know that this, this time horizon is is not realistic to, to have a good understanding. So you know when a COVID wave is coming, you kind of know. You know in a th- two or three weeks of the future, we'll hit a peak, and we can plan for all the things we need to do by that peak. But we don't know too much about how to how to proceed beyond that, or after that peak. To think, okay, you know, vaccination strategies need to be the need to be the focus for the next several months. So, so, having that time horizon shrink and expand for good reasons, I, th- I think, has been a helpful habit of mind um, for me, at least, to try to develop. And I guess the third thing is is clarity of explaining the mission in the moment. Like your organization has a mission, you can say a mission statement. Hopefully, if you've done a good job over time, everyone knows what the mission statement is, and um, or or at least. Uh, can tell you something like it back if you ask. But in a crisis, they need to understand what their organization's mission is in the crisis. And it's all the better if it's the regular mission statement focused through the lens of what the public health needs are of that motion of that of that moment. So you know, if you can say our mission is to take care of the mental health care of the community and right now, What that means is that we need to keep patients out of emergency rooms. We need to treat them without reference to a system, which can't help us do our mission right now. People can understand that people can make the micro decisions all up and down the organization that are in line with that momentary mission. And then the
1: organization works. So I want to, I'm kind of cl- in closing one or two last questions because I know I've got you up to time here. But you were in a physician, we met, you were in a physician leadership program through, through UNH. And so I want to ask you your thoughts on, phys- I mean, so listening to you, you have been involved in teams and clinical teams and as well as, you know, now you've moved into administrative roles. What makes a physician a good organizational leader? or, Or maybe, what does it take for a physician to transition from being a clinical leader to a good organizational leader? As you've made that journey, what have you seen?
0: I think translating as a skill is really critical. Being able to translate clinical language to administrators and clinical concerns in a way that makes organizational sense and then to be able to go the other direction to to help clinicians understand clinical um, goals actually at, align with what the administrators are trying to achieve or to resolve those differences if they don't and to have real clarity of how they of how and why they need to be resolved so ha, being able to step into both those worlds and translate for them i think is really a big piece of what i do and what of Uh, learned how to do over time. I think another really important thing to lead physicians is to be seen as uh, like a pretty good physician. If they don't respect you as a, you don't have to be the expert in every single area. You don't even have to be the best physician in your group, but you have to understand the way physicians think about problems and to be able to develop a differential diagnosis, to be able to bring up the psychopharmacology aspects of this case, and ask, you know, the the most relevant questions, where everyone's like, "Oh, why didn't I think of that question?" That's that's really the heart of it. If you can do those things, you you'll have the credibility to to, to lead them on administrative matters as well. And I think that it's also really important to really have it feel like part of your own mission statement in your career to be helping other clinicians develop their careers, to be their the best version of themselves, to be, what I always say is, I want you to be the clinician scholar that you imagined you would be when you signed up for medical school. Um, and for for, you know, both to, to be explicit about that message and to give co- actual concrete help to your staff as much as you can um, to help them realize that goal.
1: If you could draw a line through your career from all the way back at Johns Hopkins, when you're getting, uh, you know, your orientation to the ED to today, what would that line be that has kind of in, you know, in retrospect, um, what, what is it that that's the through line for you? It's translation.
0: It's yeah. It's for sure, that, right? <laughs> you know, between medicine and psychiatry, between the ED docs and the families in the ED waiting room at, at Johns Hopkins Hospital, between um, attendings, uh, medicine docs who don't understand why their patient has to wait so long for New Hampshire hospital bed, uh, in many of the roles I've been in, uh, between security and clinical, that tried to master the concerns of both sides of those conversations enough that I've got my brain wrapped around them and I can see where they line up and I can help people talk to each other so that patients
1: are not suffering because people can't communicate. Last question. And this is probably the most important one. How has your professional experience prepared you for your latest challenge as a Cub Scout leader? <laughs> <laughs> so um I think
0: one of the most important nonverbal communications to be able to convey as a Cub Scout leader is this stuff is both serious and fun. <laughs> and I hope that I can convey that in den meetings and PAC meetings with the kids. I hope I can convey that to uh, the parents and I hope I can convey it to my physicians right. that, that being a physician is serious and fun yeah. and developing character of your kids can and should be both serious and fun.
1: Well, I think that's a great, uh, that's a great point to leave on, right? Um, being li- living life as both serious and fun, I think is a, is a good way to think about it. Well, Dr. Fetters, thank you so much for your time today. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the chance to talk. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.